This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Today is going to be probably one of my all-time favorite podcasts, and it hasn't even happened yet. But why do I know this? <laughs> it's too much pressure. Of, too much pressure. I know. It's a lot of pressure on you. <laughs> but it, you don't have to have the pressure because you are Raphael Kushner. All right. You can, you can chill. You can chill. I... This is a man who, honestly, the best term I can use for him is my Yoda. Uh, I don't even know where I would be if it wasn't for the impact Raphael has had on my journey, on my healing, on my growth, uh, at, and even around how I show up as a coach to other people. Uh, the effect he's had on my life is so profound that there's just no words to describe it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Raphael Kushner. Thank you, Kim. I'm glad to be with you and Lucas. It's awesome. Although I feel like you're bringing up the image of like a furry, hairy beast. And you, and that's what you're comparing me to. Now I can't get out of my head. And and uh, recently, my partner, who also does this kind of work, was on a podcast about um, thriving after divorce. And she told the podcast host, you know, the person I'm seeing now, like, I'm not attracted to in the same way I used to be attracted to people. <laughs> she meant to say that like, you know, it's the whole of me and the qualities that I have. But then she went on to say, I mean, for example, um, he's shorter than I am. And so I've just been recovering from that podcast. And now I've got Yoda, you know, as a comparison. So I, I better stop doing podcasts while I'm like behind before it gets even worse. Well, let me articulate what I mean by the Yoda. It's the wisdom, the guidance, and the you can do this even though you think you can't. Mm. Well, thank you for that. I wasn't fishing, but now I'll take it. <laughs> so besides the Yoda qualities of his wisdom, Raphael is also a leading voice in the world of emotional connection and present moment awareness. If you guys watch any of my podcasts or listen to any of my Instagram lives, Raphael and his books and his work is mentioned all the time. Uh, I speak to him in my book, Transforming Wall Street as well. There's um, multiple interviews uh, where he is featured in my book speaking about what he calls emotional connection and I have called now emotional non-resistance and we're going to get into that today. But Raphael also is a leader around present moment awareness and he is also a practitioner of that and, I, and it's his practice of it and my witnessing of him practicing it that has taught me the most. Uh, he has also uh, shared his views in Oprah Magazine, which is where I first found Raphael over 12 years ago, Raphael? A long time. 
yeah. 14 years ago, long time. Uh, he's also written for Belief Net, Spirituality and Health, Psychology Today, and the Huffington Post. He is the author of six books. Uh, he lectures worldwide, is on the faculty of Esalen Institute, the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, and the Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. In addition, he coaches individuals and teams at Fortune 100 companies, governments, religious organizations, and leading nonprofits. Raphael's own heart was opened by an experience of profound grief, which we will talk about today. Uh, his first book is Unconditional Bliss. His second book, I can't recommend enough, I recommend all of them, I've read them all, is Setting Your Heart on Fire. Uh, and one of the books you guys hear me talk about a lot is the book, uh, The One Thing Holding You Back. Right now, Raphael has uh, a movie. He was in, uh, actually, I keep forgetting to tell you this, Lucas, but he was in Hollywood for 10 years, Raphael, and he was the director, a filmmaker for over 10 years in Hollywood, and he wrote, directed, and produced Showtime's movie Sexual Healing, which stars Helen Hunt, Anthony Edwards, and Jason Alexander. This film was nominated for two Cable Ace Awards, won the grand prize at Houston Film Festival, and it was designed by him as a nonprofit venture, so it raised over 30000 for Minority AIDS Project. Uh, he's written scripts for the Geffen Company, Warner Brothers, Columbia, uh, and written articles uh, in lots of magazines. It, it, he talks about how, well, I actually won't speak to that part of your bio because I want you to speak to yourself. So there was a lot to speak to. <laughs> Welcome, Raphael, to this podcast. I'm so honored and excited and happy to have you here. Mm, thank you. It feels really good just to be with you, to feel your wholeheartedness. And uh, I'll do my best since I tend to be a you know wordy person where it's like, you know, why use 10 words when a thousand will do? Um, I'll try to go the opposite direction and speak in haikus so we can get to everything. That's <laughs> that that great. That's <laughs> great. Haikus are always welcome. Raphael, you know, one of the reasons I reached out to you initially uh, was because of how you shared in that Oprah article, your own dark night of the soul. And at the time I reached out to you, I was definitely experiencing my dark night of the soul. Uh, and I remember thinking, I think this man might be able to help me before I talk to you because he knows what it's like to be in this kind of thick darkness. Uh, would you be willing to share some of what that experience was for you that started? Yeah, sure. So here's a good way to get into it. I start telling my story at workshops and I get to the point where I say I was in a classic dark night of the soul. And, um, you know, for me, what I define as a dark night of the soul is when you're in a lot of pain, you don't know how to get out of it. And everything that you've learned or tried or used in the past isn't getting you through in this situation. So it feels like you're in this darkness that is incredibly painful and doesn't have an end in sight and doesn't move or shift given your efforts. Um, and then I ask people, raise your hand if you've ever experienced something that you would consider a dark night of the soul. And usually every or almost every hand goes up. So, you know, there's biography there, there's a marriage that fell apart in really destructive and dramatic ways that I couldn't change. There's a career that fell apart. But really the essence of it is that dark night, which is, uh, you know, kind of a common human experience. And, um, you know, what, what you do, how you move with, how you welcome or not that experience has 
you know, become to me the, the linchpin of whether there's healing and transformation available there um, or not. And, you know, you talked before about your term non-resistance and definitely we need to let go of our resistance. But the question is, if it's not resistance, what, what are you replacing it with? And one way to describe that is a kind of whole body, profound acceptance. Um, but also from my experience, it needs to be an engaged acceptance. Like it can't be, I'm remotely back here, like a mindfulness meditator going like, oh, dark night of the soul over there, I accept you. I've got to go to it. I've got to relax myself in such a way that I dissolve into it. And then my awareness and my experience start to become one. And as I surf that, I love that term surfing. As I surf that, then things start to move and shift and open up. And that was something that I stumbled my way into. I did not figure it out right away. I didn't do it very well for a long time. But the more I did that, the more things started to change. And then that's when kind of the match lit and I was graced with an awakening that I wasn't even looking for. And what, if you're willing to, what precipitated and allowed you to stumble into it? Well, you know, I think that everybody who was wise, who were, you know, my friends at the time were saying like, why are you always talking about her? Why are you always obsessed about her? Like, what about you? What are you experiencing? What's happening in this moment for you? And at first that was like fingernails on a chalkboard. Um, but over time, my resistance was kind of ground down in a way. And then there is an interesting story about that. I'll just take a minute to tell it might get at what you're asking me. Um, because I was in Mexico and I um, was with some family members and one of them very innocently said to me, so how are you doing in your getting over Linda? And I bristled, you know, with reactively at that moment. What are you talking about? That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm doing. Because um, I was like holding the space for things to work out and shift. And I wasn't mm -hmm. ready to even move on. But then I was reading on the beach the book Pigs in Heaven by Barbara Kingsolver, which is about family of choice. You know, the one that you make after you graduate from your, or, or not graduate, but like grow up from your family of origin. And I went from feeling like I was accepting this separation and all of the pain that it had, like grimly sort of like, not against my will, but like, cause I had to. Mm. And on the beach, I shifted towards like, no, I'm doing this because this is who I am. This is a privilege. This is an honor to be present to my own pain to the potential of healing in this relationship, wherever it goes. Um, and so kind of like the last, you know, turn of the dial mm -hmm. so that my acceptance went from like a little bit begrudging to full on freed up, you know, whatever was still left in me. And at that point I flew home and I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't looking for it, but everything started to open up. Wow. wow. What do you feel facilitates that in general for people? The, uh, the willingness, is it just because it's the last resort? There's, there's no other way to go because you're in the corner with resistance? Well, you know, that's one way. And I, 
I think to myself, like, if that's the only way, then like all of my books and all of my teaching is kind of a lie, right? Because it would just be like, can't can't stop the heartbreak, break your heart, break open if you're lucky, you know, mm-hmm. God bless you. Um, but that would also, that would leave a lot out. In other words, yeah. I really believe that if you learn how to move forward without effort, if you learn how to relax into the flow of life experience, if you learn how to be so close to your experience that you let it lead you, mm-hmm. so awareness and experience start to blend together, then you don't necessarily have to hit bottom like I did and like so many people do. So I think that, you know, I would say there's kind of two prongs, so to speak, of the work that I do. One of them is to help people get there without hitting bottom. And then the other is if you are hitting bottom and you don't know what to do or you feel helpless or powerless or like it's never going to change, it all still applies. So get out of hell or don't have to go there, you know, in the first place. Those would be the two options. One of the things that I really struggled with and, you know, can still on occasion struggle with is at the early part of our work together, you would suggest that I be in my body. Mm-hmm. And for a very long time, I found that to be the most challenging because I began to see and notice through that conversation that for me to go into my body was a completely foreign experience that I had been living intellectually in my head, but very disconnected from the physicality of my uh, body, of the physicality of my emotions and my feelings. So I remember at the beginning when you were asked me to and I, and I say this is your quote all the time, take the elevator from your head into your body. It was like I pressed a button and the elevator wasn't moving down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're really, really conditioned to stay in our heads. And there are lots of people now who have recognized the importance of, quote, somatic work. Um, it's even being brought into, like, racial healing work. So, like... Um, Resma Menica, uh, you know, talks about the trauma of not just black bodies, but the trauma of white bodies and the trauma of blue bodies in terms of police and how we're all carrying such trauma and we carry it in our bodies. We carry all of our resisted emotion in our bodies and all of our currently generated emotion we carry in our bodies. So um, we start out, most of us, feeling like we don't want to pay attention to our body unless it's either not doing what we want it to do and then we've got to fix it, um, you know, or we try to create a performance out of it to get it to, to, get it to do more of what we want. Um, but our inner landscape, when we slow down and start looking and tuning in, is as rich as what you, we see with our eyes in the outer landscape. Mm-hmm. So even though at first it can be like, what are you talking about? I don't feel much of anything. Um, that's the beginning place. But as long as you're willing to stay just a little bit, things start to show up. And it turns out that the sum total of our human intelligence is distributed throughout our whole body. So there's brain intelligence, but there's also heart intelligence. There's also gut intelligence. Our cells have emotional receptors on them. So to be a person who is fully 
self-actualized, um, we need to be able to access all of those intelligences. So for people like you who understandably are like frustrated and I'm stuck, I don't know, you know what to do. I tend to get really incremental, really small. I sometimes will talk about a scientist looking at an anthill through a magnifying glass. Like at first it's like, it's just a block, it's just a block. There's nothing there. Like what, I don't, got, don't have to write down anything, but stay for five minutes. And then you see, oh, these ants are taking food or waste out of the ant. You know, these ones are bringing food into it. Oh, look at that one. It seems to be defending, you know, that other bug that's trying to come there. So it's like starting to look with new eyes at a landscape that is unfamiliar to you. But once you make that shift, then it, your whole intelligence in your body starts revealing itself to you in your own unique ways. Because not everybody experiences their internal sensing in the same way. Some people see many images and they almost go on a guided journey when they tune into their emotion. Other people only sense it viscerally. Um, and, you know, as many people as there are, there are different blends of how people perceive. So it's not just experiencing something that you haven't before it's also perceiving in a different way and finding out what is your way and that's what starts to allow you to gain access to that whole body intelligence that you're asking me about a lot of the people that watch our podcast now are day traders mm -hmm. they're in a very volatile day-to-day -day experience and one of the things i'm always advocating to them is that they perhaps at least pause before the day begins or pause in the middle of that day to be present to what their emotional landscape feels like, what they're, are they tired? Are they, you know, all jacked up from caffeine? Just be present to what is going on with themselves before they go into that, you know, what do you want to call a big wave ocean? Uh, because it is such a big wave. And for some of them, it can be very challenging because in a lot of ways, some think their strength has been to not listen to that, to be just intellectual, to not let their emotions, you know, this is the conversation we have all the time is, I need to be unemotional as a trader. And I'm like, you know, good luck because you're a human being. So what would your advice to them be when, they, when they're trying to apply what is understandable they're teaching, they've heard, don't be emotional, you got to stay neutral. What would your advice to them be as they sit, you know, wrestling with that thought process and what you're speaking to about well, being there? Yeah, first of all, there's the attempted calm outside the storm, which doesn't work. And then there's the calm inside the storm, which can work. And, um, you know, one of the things that I say in the book, the one thing holding you back is that whenever emotions are disparaged or denied or repressed in any situation, personal or interpersonal, they end up running the show behind the scene. Um, and so most people know they've been in a staff meeting, everybody's egos are acting out and it's not about what's really on the whiteboard, it's about everything else that's unspoken. So like you said, good luck with that. Attempting to be unemotional in an emotional experience, you know, doesn't make any sense. But opening yourself to what you're experiencing so that you start to become more present and you start to expand 
actually puts you in the peak performance state. Um, and so that's the key thing that I would share with day traders or anybody else in a high pressure environment, which is that the adrenaline that gets kicked up, which tells you, you know, your survival is at stake. Um, best case scenario is there to warn you about something that needs your attention. But that's not a problem solving state. That's not a harmonious inner state. And that part doesn't know its own limitations, right? So first it goes, alarm, alarm, alarm. And if you're skillful, you're like, okay, thank you for that alarm. Let me notice, is there a, is there a fire going on? If there isn't, I can remind myself there is no fire, right? Um, or there might be a fire as in like, I feel nauseous. So turning toward that nausea, breathing into it and out of it, letting yourself follow the wave of the nausea rather than clamping down is automatically gonna put you into a state that is reliable for clear thinking, for accurate perception, for action that is integrated. Um, so recognizing that the part of you that's hyping you up doesn't have the skill to actually do what you wanna do allows you to recognize that job one is to get out of that high adrenaline fight flight freak freeze state um and so i really try to focus on efficacy like try looking clearly try seeing what's in front of you when you're in a panic state you know doesn't work very well try doing the same thing when you relaxed when you are no longer in stress and where you're no longer thinking there's something wrong and literally like something, you know, your life at stake. And so then, I mean, if I stay with this for one more moment, you know, some of the people that listen into your podcast might say, well, kind of like it is my life at stake. I've got $50,000 riding on what happens in the next minute. Right. Um, and even if that's true, you want best practices, you want your best, perception, you want your best acuity, you want your best nimble ability to keep shifting with what you're seeing on your screen. And all of that comes from being with rather than being against. Yeah. The, the word that really stood out to me there was the word integration. You want to realize that unless it, you're integrated, your response isn't going to be as effective or as powerful. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, just to take it quickly out of that realm to be able to reapply it to that realm, someone might say to me, like, um, my fear of uh, rejection is ruining all my relationships. Um, it makes me needy. And, you know, over and over again, I meet the same kind of person. I think it's great. And then sooner or later, I screw it up because I'm so needy. And I might say to that person, do you think it'd be possible to actually welcome the needy part of you into the fold? You know, and I'm thinking about one part, one person who said to me, no, I'd like to surgically remove it. Um, and I understand that, right? But because what you resist persists, um, if you stay in that tight no, then that fear of resistance is gonna run your life. And that neediness is gonna take over and it's gonna have control instead of you. Um, 
So when you start going back to integration, which was the word that you caught, um, if you take what you are most scared of or what you don't like the most about you or what in the moment is the most worrisome to you, and you just instead, this is the non-resistance thing, instead of saying, oh, I can't go there, you just go like, come on in, sit down. You know, can I put my arm around you? What do you need? You're attuning to that part of you. You're bringing the care that it needs and then it calms down. And then you have that space that I've been talking about. Yeah. And so just like that part of your brain that's going alarm, alarm, doesn't know how to fix the situation. The part of you that's creating that nausea in your stomach, whether it's about a relationship and your neediness or whether it's about a day trade, also doesn't know what it needs. It just knows it's upset. Just like a toddler doesn't know how to self-soothe. So you're bringing a caring attentiveness to that part of you and then everything relaxes. And relaxation, sometimes I call that expansion, is the most reliable thing you've got. So when I talk to people who are in any stressful situation, personal or professional, I say, first question is, where are you on the continuum of contraction and expansion? And if you notice that you're not mostly open, then stop doing whatever you're doing and get open first. And then go back to the task at hand and you'll just be so much more successful at it. So trying to make it simple and actionable you can ask yourself in any moment or experience on the scale between this and this, where am I? And then adjust accordingly. You know, that technique I have used in so many different scenarios. And it is the best description I can give for my own experiences. It's like being anchored with a belay to, you know, earth. It will just get me back to that sense of even if I fall, I have a belay attached to the earth or source or whatever to catch me. And it just like, but, you know, I can still forget on many occasions. <laughs> but when I remember, boom, back to center. Well, that's the um, really key thing that you just hit on. Um, you know, I mentioned that surfing is a good metaphor for this work because you're bringing your attention to your sensation. So your attention is the surfer and the sensation is the wave. Mm. But when you wipe out in the actual ocean, it takes a lot of strenuous paddling out to where the waves are. And they may already be done or you might have to wait another hour for another set of waves. But when you wipe out in inner surfing, when you're mm. surfing your emotional experience, there's only one wave that matters, which is the wave of this present moment. So you can wipe out a hundred times and you're not doomed and you haven't lost because you can always just ask what is happening right now. And there's always a new now. So fall off as much as you want because you can always just get back on. Yeah. Uh, one of my, uh, oh, sorry, Lucas, please. No, I just said that that's fun. That's a that's a good way to be where it's it's not surfing on the ocean necessarily. It's more like a surfing on a river. <laughs> Fall off and hop back on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you know, I'll tell you that one of the most beautiful things that anybody ever said to me about as I was coaching them and doing this work, and this goes along with what we're talking about, is they said, Raphael, 
you're like my personal GPS system. Because in the car, when the GPS is on and trying to get you to a destination and you make a wrong turn, the GPS goes recalculating, recalculating. <laughs> then it goes turn left on second street. And then if you pass second street and it's time, and you know, now you're lost again, it goes recalculate, recalculate, <laughs> make a U-turn at the light. It doesn't go like after your second mistake, doesn't go, are you listening when I'm talking to you? <laughs> Do you even know how to drive? Are you a fool? Can you give someone else the wheel? It doesn't do any of that. It just very calmly goes recalculating. So wiping out. That is so fabulous. So wiping out and getting back on the wave is just recalculating, recalculating. Yeah, that's such a great metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for those who are saying, but my situation is very dramatic or my situation uh, is, you know, this would never work. What do you say to those people? This would never work for me. And my what's, the, what's the this? Well, I think what I'm going to speak to is just trauma. People that have some deep trauma, uh, you know, that was a big part of what we did work around from my own journey together. And I remember many times thinking that it wouldn't work, that it wasn't working at the beginning because it was so hard for me to, I didn't want to be with those hard to be with feelings. And also I'm going to speak just to my own experience. I was frustrated and annoyed that I'd have to feel some of those feelings and also working my way through some of like what I learned in Landmark, right? And or from other courses where they're like, you know, um, take responsibility, right? And put it down. And yet I found that even though I wanted to choose to put it down, I wasn't fully able to put it down. Yeah. Well, I think that first of all, there's a hard truth to this, you know, and I'll, I'll loop it back to something we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, as other people have said, I wasn't the one who first said this, you know, my job is not to help you feel better, but just mm. to help you get better at feeling. Yeah. And you might not want to get better at feeling. If, you, if you're worried that the feelings are going to kill you, they're going to overwhelm you. And that's what the brain thinks at first before it gets a chance to update because it doesn't know the difference between something like grief in your body and someone chasing you outside of your body. Your, your brain, your primitive brain just knows that you're in danger and it's trying to sound that alarm. So it's natural at first to say, why would anybody ever want to go there? But that's why I don't tell anybody that they have a problem or that they should be any different if things are working for them. So even if, and this is what I meant by looping back, even if someone's not in a dark night of the soul, there's still ways that they can see that whatever they're doing isn't working for them as well as it could. So I don't think there's any salesmanship involved in this work if we do it well. It's more like if you, if what you're doing is working for you, awesome. You don't need this. You don't need me. If it's not working for you, let's do it on a trial basis. And let's recognize that 
Um, most people start to feel an emotion and then because it might uh, swell up at first, they check out before they'd be able to get to the subsiding. Yep. The truth is, is that most difficult emotions, if you really surf them, only last for a minute or two at a time. That doesn't mean like if you have a ton of grief that, you know, surf your grief for two minutes and you're done. Right. It just means that grief only comes in the now in waves of a minute or two. And most people, if you told them, wait, you told them this, they might say like, wait, I've been, my whole life, I've been organizing around not feeling something that I could have done in two minutes. Exactly. That's a, that's a tragedy <laughs> that in some ways is a lost life. Yeah. So what I share with people is like, I'm not telling you to do this for a day, not even for an hour. Just see what happens when you go with it for a few minutes and then let your own body and your own experience tell you whether it's something that might work for you or not. And if you think it won't, let it go because there's lots of other approaches. Um, but the other thing that I would say to people who want to be effective and want to be wise is that the strong take responsibility approach that you were talking about mm -hmm. is sometimes, you know, we could say like the best part of the Western ideal, mm -hmm. you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, man up, make it happen. That's like manifest what you want, the power position. And then the being with it, the surfing that we're talking about is more like the Eastern approach. Um, it's more like Buddhism, more like Hinduism. Um, and I don't think you have to pick. I think the whole thing yeah. is get the order right. In other words, if you let go of your resistance and you relax into being, then you're free to kick ass as effectively as possible. Then take that, you know, staff and move forward as a leader, make it happen for yourself. And the, the actual fringe benefit that you get that you didn't even know you were looking for is that when you blend those two things together, structure and flow, being and doing, then you actually hook up to what I would call, you know, cosmic energy. And so you, you used to think, I've got to push this damn boulder up the mountain myself. And if I let go for one second, it's going to roll backwards and squash me. But then you experiment with what we're talking about. And you take your hand off the boulder a little bit. And you go, it's actually moving a little on its own. And then you push it and it starts to move a little bit easier, a little bit faster. And you realize that because I hadn't blended the two approaches, I had put it all on me when all along I had this resource, this support that was available to me that I didn't even know existed before. So that's kind of like the fringe benefit that you weren't even aware of that you're going to get when you blend those two approaches. Yeah. Beautifully said, beautifully said. So for, would you be willing to just dive deeper into what you spoke about with regards to the primitive brain and that red alert not being the place where we're really able to shift ourselves? Just, just what happens physiologically to us when in the throes or the grip of a hard-to-be-with feeling? Yeah, so as I mentioned, a hard to be with feeling is 
met by the primitive brain as life-threatening. Um, you know, the, the brain in a general sense, it, you know, evolved in three layers. There's the primitive brain, which is all about keeping you alive. There's the limbic system, which is mostly about emotion and memory. And then there's the neocortex, which is all about abstract thinking and reasoning. And, you know, the primitive brain is the most powerful um, in terms of the grip that it can have on you, because um, it, it's, 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 you know, locked into survival, you know, uh, you know, of the organism. It's not, so, so diving in a little bit deeper, what we need to see is that for maximum functioning, we need each of those three parts of the brain or three levels of the brain to be functioning well on its own and then well with the other parts. But why we get hung up and why we're not able to get that, again, integrative functioning that we were touching on before is because the primitive brain um, is staying in lockdown. Mm. It thinks it's saving your life. Mm. And so when you start to turn your attention toward a difficult feeling, or even towards the contraction that you feel in your chest or your gut or your shoulders, that's the, in the, the evidence that you're shut down. You haven't even got to the feeling yet. All you know is like, I'm tight, I'm tight, right? When you turn your attention to that tightness and you start to surf it, it's as if the primitive brain goes, wait, what are we doing? Something different? Like, I don't know if I, I'm okay with this. I, you know, I reserve the right to shut it down, but okay, let's see what happens. In other words, as powerful as it is, it knows it's not the whole show. It doesn't control everything. And so then you tune into the contraction, you know, tightness across the chest. Let me just stay there for a few moments. Let it start to move because everything's always moving if we haven't locked it down or it's even moving under our lockdown. So we start to notice it. It's like, oh, okay, it's going around my neck. Now it's like dropping into my chest. Now I'm not sure why, but I'm a little bit teary. Um, what happens is the contraction starts to open, just like we were talking about before that we need to open. And then you're in touch with what the primitive brain was trying to protect you from in the first place. I'm sad or I'm scared or I feel rejected, or I feel shame. And you stay with that for those one or two minutes that I was just describing earlier. And then, and here's the magic, you don't die. And then the primitive brain gets a chance to update. And it learns, it says, oh, shame, not footsteps in the dark alley. We don't have to lock down as hard and as quickly and as intensely as we used to do. And so then you become a person who can feel shame if you need to, not get tied up in the verdict or the thinking around shame, but feel the wave of shame that already exists in you so that it can then let go of you. Because what all of this is based on is that a feeling wants to be felt. That's all. If you feel it, it doesn't have any reason to stick around and mess up your life. So even if you feel shame or not good enough um, or any of the difficult emotions, feeling them is healing them. And they let you go. And when they let go of you, they naturally 
effortlessly move you into the expanded state that is the peak state that we were talking about before. So good. So good. The, the concept of feelings just want and need to be felt. What happens when we don't feel our feelings? So the first thing is that they don't go away. Um, they become a part of our unconscious. So they first were saying, feel me, feel me. And then you kept saying, no, damn it. And so then they start going unconscious and they're in the unconscious. They're going, notice me, I'm still here. And they keep trying to bubble up to get your attention. So one of the ways they get your attention is that if you keep putting your energy on pressing them down over time, that becomes depression. Um, that's one way they can get your attention. They can get your attention by creating stress and even illness, um, and they can even kill you ultimately. But there's one, and you may be thinking about this, Kim, because we've been at this a long time together. There's my favorite thing to talk about, which is also the most diabolical way that they get noticed which is they act like a magnet and they bring into your life people and situations that are bound to make you feel that same feeling that you vowed that you wouldn't feel in the first place. So what does that mean if we just make it simple? That unfelt emotions are the number one cause of repetitive negative patterns in your life experience. So if you they want to start say that one more time. Yeah. yeah. Say that like Tax five more times. Yeah. <laughs> so unfelt emotions are the number one cause of repetitive negative patterns in our lives. So if you want to, if you think like I'm a person who keeps meeting the same guy or gal in relationship over and over again, or if I keep climbing the ladder and then I get, in trouble, you know, with because of my issues with authority over and over again in the workplace, um, whatever your situation is, if you think like, I'm doomed, right, you think it happens over and over. And the more I try to change it, the more it keeps happening. So you might even feel desperate about it. And if you really want to change that quickly and efficiently, then start to find the feelings underneath. And then the magnet starts to lose its power and you also see things a little bit differently and i want to be honest about one part of this i'll just add a piece so let's say you're a person who would walk into a party of 50 people of your chosen gender right and you're single and you're looking for a relationship the way this starts at first is that because of your unfelt emotions and your unconscious you're like a heat-seeking missile you just go like right to the person who's the absolute worst for you, right? <laughs> and maybe you get into another relationship in six months or a year until you finally extricate yourself because, oh, you know, the other shoe dropped and that's exactly what I was trying to avoid. When you start feeling the emotions underneath, it's not like you walk into that same party and like a heat-seeking missile, you go to like Mr. or Ms. Wright. It's not like, wow, I found the healthy person and I love it. It's more like this. You go back you go to the same party and the heat seeking missile goes right to the worst person. And then you go, oh, look at that. 
there's my thing. That person is triggering my thing. Let me notice that. Where do I feel that in my body? Ooh, okay, let me breathe into that. Every part of me wants to go over there and talk, but I know that that's my thing. And I'm not even going to say I'm not going to talk to that person. But like, who else is here? And then you start to see other people that you never would have seen before. And then the next step is, is that maybe you even find somebody who's better for you. But you're worried because there's not a lot of drama. There's not a lot of intensity that you used to run on. And you're like, this person is great, but I'm kind of bored. Like, I don't know if I can stay here. Like, isn't life supposed to be exciting? Where's the passion? Um, and it takes a while to start shifting from, let's say, unhealthy passion to healthy passion. And you've got to hang out long enough, just like you got to surf that wave long enough to see its end. You've got to hang out long enough in what's unfamiliar to you, what is not your condition, before you can start to rely on what your response will actually and healthily be. So that's a kind of, you can swap out work. It doesn't have to be just relationship. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. Like the way the change really happens. I was going to say just that. I, it, I could almost take the concept of the trades that traders are taking that match the concept of like a heat-seeking missile at a party, yeah. but a heat-seeking that you constantly find yourself repeating, right, Lucas? The yeah, same trade. <laughs> Right? I was going to say, I, I have to make the comparison of this is exactly what, I mean, I went through it where it was like, I just kept taking these same trades because it was like, sometimes they worked, but other like, and it was just, a, just boiling emotions the entire time. And I think I was more in it for the ride of it than I was to try to be profitable. And so once that became clear to me, then things shifted. But yeah, I, I think exactly what you're saying is. It's, it's something you got to be aware of. That awareness is is key. Yeah, and you know, an adrenaline rush is really addictive, and it's there actually in our system to help us get away from the saber tooth tiger, right? Like that's what it's good for. But we start getting addicted to it um, and the intensity of it, um, and then it starts to create, you know, damage for ourselves. And so when people are thinking about whatever activities they're doing, whether it's trading in a certain way or you know, gambling or pornography or whatever their adventuring is, mm -hmm. the, the best uh, indicator that I know of whether somebody is pursuing something in a healthy way or in a, you know, a resistant way, as we've been talking about, um, a way that is hurtful to them is whether they have an adrenaline rush. So um, I'm not saying that like, there's not going to be some adrenaline in trading because you know, right. lots on the line. But what I'm saying is, is, as you were just talking about Lucas, you know, like if, the, if it's a boiling feeling, if it is a high in a way, um, mm -hmm. it feels like life, um, but it has that adrenaline quality that tells me it's powerful, but it's split off. It's not the unified, integrated you working with what's really happening in the moment. It's, in a way, a distraction from what you still haven't been able to feel. And the more powerful it is, you know, the, the easier it is to not feel what's underneath. But what we know is, do that enough, and you burn out. 
yeah. right? No, no gambler can stay at that level of intensity of that adrenaline. Um, and then of course it takes more and more to get to that level of adrenaline. So you're gonna make bigger trades, you know, or you're gonna put more money on the table. Um, and so if it worked over time, that'd be great. But instead what happens is it burns you out, you know, and breaks you down and we're looking to do the opposite. So the phrase that you taught me that came up for me before was how you've taught me to find the flinch. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's connected to what I was just talking about, that when you, if you have a, um, let's say, something that you want to be doing, um, and it could be anything in life. It could be, you know, you want to redecorate your house, you want to make more money, you want to have a better relationship, you want to write that novel that's been in you all this time. Then if you're starting to pay attention, and this is all about attention, then you'll notice that there's a play, there's a moment when you could be walking toward what feels right and good and healthy for you and you stop, something stops you. I like to use the example of that. I, I mentioned a novel before, somebody who has always wanted to write a book, they get a new computer, they set uh, up you know, a, a, an area in their living room where they're gonna write, they change their schedule so they've got good energy hours, you know, where they're gonna sit down. And then not only do they not sit down, but pretty soon they don't even go, go into that room at all because it's just like too much. Um, so that's what we would call a flinch. Um, and so once you notice the flinch, is it here? Is it in your belly? Is it in your temples? And you kind of breathe that open as we've been talking about. You can ask yourself the question, if I go forward, what's the worst thing that could happen? And if that happens, how would I feel? And in that process, you can identify what is the resisted feeling that is keeping you from doing what it is that you most want to do. And then you have the opportunity to start to bring that feeling forward in a safe way rather than in a damaging way. Uh, And in that process, you break through the resistance that was, you know, maybe even unconscious in you before. So in that story of the writer, you know, the writer might really be excited about writing his or her book, but also underneath there is a fear of failure you know so what's the worst thing that can happen it would suck you know how would i feel i feel like a loser right okay where do you feel that in your body right now as you're going through this exercise with me and the person might you know say you're all right in my gut and i might say can you just surf that feeling that you're calling failure in your belly for a few moments recognize we're not talking about the idea of failure this isn't did you fail or not? Is this a failure or not? It's just the raw feeling that's showing up in your belly. Can you stay with that? And if you do stay with that, then going back to what we were talking about before, the primitive brain says, oh, failure, not life-threatening, not footsteps in a dark alley. So you can go forward knowing that even if you do start to feel failure in your belly, you'll move through it. And you know, the difference between people who write complete books and people who don't are people who are willing to go through that way. Plain and simple. It doesn't mean they're good books necessarily. That's a whole other subject. But if all you ever wanted to do was write a book and you actually get from the beginning to writing the end, yeah. you, know, you found a way to metabolize failure mm. enough so that you didn't get stuck in that flinch. 
Metabolize is such a great word. That's uh, exactly. Yeah. You know, as you were describing that, Raphael, I had a flashback to being in a pretty empty Starbucks in New York City talking to you about my opportunity to come back to Hawaii and leave New York. And I was wanting to do it, but panic-stricken to do it as well. And I just remembered that we had this conversation. Thank God for my sake, it was an empty Starbucks. But I remember being in a chair talking to you, and you were working me through this expansion of what is the worst thing that could happen, Kim, if you do move there. Because, of course, I was like, thinking of uh, because I'm really good at catastrophizing you know I have a doctorate master's as you well know (laughs) and 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 you just had me be with that worst case scenario which turned out in my imagination to not as not be as dramatic as I thought it might be and only way I figured that out was because you suggested I be with that right and so it's important to add a little bit of something to this. It can seem like we're talking about masochism, right? Like, why am I just going to feel the thing that I don't want to feel? So here's a quick example. Somebody in one of my workshops um, had uh, found the great love of her life, and then he died. And she had grieved. And on the one hand, she was ready to maybe find another partner. But there was a part of her that was saying, I can never do that again. I can never feel what I felt when I lost him. And so it was keeping her from really being open to a new possibility. So in the workshop setting, which was safe and different from like, you know, just talking about it right now, yeah, she had my trust. And what I asked her to do was for her project to pretend that she did meet somebody, that he was amazing, and that he died too. And I wanted her to write his eulogy. I wanted her to use the people in the workshop as her um, group of close friends and acquaintances, you know, imagining this, and to read the eulogy of the second person. Wow. And, you know, that can sound like, God, what, that's, what are you trying to do? Are you getting off on someone's pain or misery? But no, it's actually going back to that word metabolize. Like, she had a, an idea in her mind that she couldn't be with more intensity, more grief of that you know, kind, but that was just an idea. And then to give her the opportunity to feel that and to remember, oh, all feelings are a part of aliveness. The, the greatest, most effective, most joyful life is the one when you feel your way through everything. And it, you know, John Kabat-Zinn called it full catastrophe living. The idea that like life's going to bring it and I want to say yes to all of it so that I can be here, right? There's an old joke postcard that said, having a wonderful time, wish I was here. (laughs) (laughs) And what we're saying is like, don't let another day go by where you're living according to that postcard. And if you recognize that feelings won't kill you, that feelings keep bringing you to your greatest wholeness and aliveness. And they also become a compass in a healthy way to show you what you what matters to you, what you want. Yeah. Then you go from somebody who's locked down in fear to somebody who's free. Yeah. And that's what we're looking for, freedom. Yeah. yeah. Just on the note of uh, 
Lucas, did you go to ask a question? I sorry, I keep no, hogging. No, you're up fine. You're fine. <laughs> I was just, I was just uh, thinking. So much of what you're saying is, uh, it seems to me about like embracing whatever we have or whatever is showing up, um, and being present to that. What, uh, in so many ways, I feel like our our culture and society doesn't doesn't necessarily um, allow us or. Uh, cultivate the idea of feeling emotions and uh, you know, that's often frowned upon in many aspects of the way we live. Uh, so how do we, how do we get better at that in like safe ways? Uh, how, do, how could somebody find place to do that? Well, it's a great question. First of all, we're not meant to do it alone. The wisest among us understand that we don't exist apart from other people. Um, you know, whenever I hear people in the political situation talk about, you know, bootstraps and independence, and I'm a self-made billionaire, I think you didn't build the freaking roads, right? You didn't buy the truck, you know, that takes all your stuff and sends it to you. You're not all those people who harvested the food that became nutrition for all the people who work for you. Like everything we do is stitched together with everybody else. So that's number one. Um, the next thing is, is that there's lots of ways to find gentle support to begin this process. And here's an example. You know, Kim was asking me earlier, what do you have to plug, Raphael? I wasn't really in a plugging mood, but on my website, which is kushner.com, C-U-S-H-N-I-R, um, on the resources tab, there's what's called free guided emotional surfing meditations. There's a short one and a long one. Each version has one type with music and one without because different people you know, prefer one or the other. So I'm not plugging it for money. I'm saying it's free. Download it to your phone or your tablet and let me guide you for the first 10 times you do it yep. into whatever you're feeling. Practice it at first when there's no one else around and when you're not doing something that needs your attention. And then at a certain point, you'll be like, oh, I got this. I think I could do this now. I don't need that Raphael guy anymore. Um, so that's one way to get started. Um, and also, if you start doing it when you're like in a meditative moment, when nothing else is going on, pretty soon you'd be able to bring it. You're able, you're able to bring it to moments where there's a lot of stuff going on. So like your boss is yelling at you. You can still go like, okay, what's happening in my body right now? Oh, I feel like a heart is pounding. And just actually knowing and touching your pounding heart with your attention starts to calm it and give you some room. And you start to go from somebody who's reactive, meaning you say and do things that you're not in control of, to somebody who's responsive. You, in other words, you're actually able to do things in concert with your highest good because you've paid attention to what's going on. So... That's another way how you can get better or stronger. Um, and then, you know, you can do this work with me. You can do it with Kim. I mean, there's lots of, lots of people who are, are able to help guide you. I do group programs also that work around this idea so that people can be supported in ways that's different from your spouse or your siblings or your people in your workplace or even your church um, or synagogue um, or mosque or whatever. Um, so, those are ways to get started. Um, and then what happens, and this is the best news of all, is that it becomes a way of meeting life. 
it's no longer like I'm doing this practice called emotional surfing, or sometimes I call it living the questions. It's no longer a thing. It's more just like you meet the moment as fully as possible, moment by moment by moment. Um, and then it just becomes as natural as breathing. Love it. The, the workshops that Raphael puts on, um, you know, prior to the pandemic multiple times a year are just absolutely incredible experiences. Raphael, some of the most profound aha moments I had about myself and how kind of locked down I was came out of that, came with my participation in your workshops, with the incredible souls that join you at these workshops that I were the peers that I did the work with. And to this day, there are moments from those workshops many, many years ago that are still there for me because they were the, they were the kind of lighthouse on the shore that I realized I wanted to go towards. So, yeah, that's so great. You just reminded me that actually I'm going back to teach at Esalen in June. You are? It's my Fabulous. first public workshop since the pandemic started. So a, anybody can go to the Esalen website, ESALEN.org, and see us, I think, at the 25th of, Ju of June. Okay. And that workshop will be called what? It's actually going to be called Setting Your Heart on Fire, your favorite book title. Wow, that's so beautiful. Baby, I have to go. Hey. <laughs> I've never done it at Esalen with you, and Esalen's my favorite of all those magical places. Yeah, that's so gorgeous. great, so great. Uh, Raphael, I could keep you here all day, and uh, we would not have, you know, run out of things to talk about. I, how, you know... It's like that, I don't know, you, you know this movie because you know movies, To Start With Love. It's like, how do you thank someone from taking you from crayons to perfume? So, <laughs> Well, now I feel you're like me, Kim, because I am surrounded by a lot of younger people. I have kids and stuff. And I'm constantly dating myself with my references. I'll go like, you all remember that movie, right? Now, I'm guessing, Kim, that out of the people who are listening to this podcast, Something like 0.1% has ever heard of that movie. So you, <laughs> and I can, you and I can enjoy it. Like, Lucas, have you heard of that movie? No. Sidney no. no. Potier. Potier is in that movie. Oh, really? And, and, huh? and Lulu. He's the, he's the, he's the teacher of uh, these young hoodlums. And he, he basically meets them with the energy that you, Raphael, met me with. Oh, well, that's the first time I've ever been compared to Sydney Portier. I'm going to take that in. I'm going to really savor that. You made my night. You know. <laughs> Glad I, I did that much, much better than Yoda. Just to from bring Yoda up. to Sydney Portier. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad I, I redeemed myself. <laughs> you, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. You're somewhere Thank in you. between both of those. Because <laughs> yeah, it's always a continuum, Lucas. We're never right. all exactly. one. So I'm Sydney Portier, but a little bit hairier, a little bit smaller, you know, something like that. Just the wisdom of Yoda. It's just the wisdom of Yoda. That's all. The wisdom and the the quality of Yoda to make Luke Skywalker be the hero of his own journey. You help me to become the hero of my own journey. And I don't I didn't want to be in that swamp, man. And you were like too freaking bad. <laughs> now, now you're just going to make me cry. So you better you better quit before I cry. I mean, I'm happy to cry for people to show them that it's all right to cry, but I don't really want to 
It's too late. You're time. You're, you're giving us so much. So thank you uh, for everything you've given to me. Thank you for having this conversation with the viewers and listeners we have. And we'll have you on again if you'll be willing to come back. Sure. Yeah. And we can even do this with traders, you know? Yes. Bring on some people to the Zoom and they can talk about their own challenges and we can do the work in front of everybody live. That sounds fabulous. Let's do that. Let's do that. We'll get a couple of volunteers, Raphael, and then people can see exactly this technique in real time. I think it's a great idea. So we'll do that. I look forward to it. Thank you guys so much. It was great to talk to you. Great to meet you, Lucas. It was really fun. So good. So good. All right. We'll see you guys next time on the Wall Street Coach. Please let us know what you thought about this. Give us your comments. Please share your stories. And please look at Raphael Kushner's website, kushner.com. Read his books, The One Thing Holding You Back, Setting Your Heart on Fire. How Now is another book that I recommend all the time because it's quick exercises you can take in the moment, like bite-sized exercises. Uh, And we'll... See you next time on the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Aloha for now. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with K-Man Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.